So um, it is Wednesday, it's June 19th, 2013. I can't believe the rate at which these years are going by. It's Brent Vinson's birthday. Where you at, Brent? Yeah, and uh, can you believe he's only 26, you know? No, it is, it's good to serve God and let the years go by. You get the opportunity to see amazing things. We've been studying the book of Jude a lot in, in my home on Monday nights. And there's a phrase that's been just reverberating in my ears. And we're not going to cover the book of Jude, but I just would like to read this to you. It comes from Jude, the uh, only chapter and third verse. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to urge, write and urge you to contend for the faith. I want to talk to you tonight about contending for the faith. So the message could be called contend. When we think of the word contend, often it's the root for what is sometimes viewed negatively, contention. But we're supposed to be in contention for certain things. If you're not in contention, you're not even in the game, friends. And Jude wrote not just about the salvation that brothers and sisters share in the faith, but the need to contend for the faith. We're familiar with the Apostle Paul having said things like, I have fought the good fight of faith. He was in contention with the powers of darkness, contention with those who were puppeted by them, in contention with the elements, contention with his desires within him, in contention with false brothers, in contention with the very opposition of hell. But if we stay in contention, if we stay in the fight, there's a reward at the end of this race, friends. I want with all of my heart to reach that reward. And in the name of Jesus, I will have it because God left it up to you. Tonight, I want to talk to you about that kind of contending. Now, when you think of it, there's many ways that you could think of it. In the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah contends for the faith. There's something that's polluted the uh, people of God and Nehemiah gets angry and he beats up a few guys, pulls out the hair from their face, and calls down curses. That's not how I would prefer to contend, but Nehemiah was a governmental official, and he exercised the rights of that governmental official to contend for the faith. In the 25th chapter of Numbers, a guy named Phinehas sees something impure in Israel, and he picks up a spear, and he contends for the faith by killing two human beings. Now, in the Newer Testament, we get this phrase a lot. You hear it echoed from Ephesians 6, and most Christians can quote it. For we wrestle not against... And this is where we tend to stop. We go, oh, well, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, what do we wrestle against, friends? Principalities, rulers, and dark and high places. We are meant to contend. You were never meant to simply say, oh, well, I'm a spiritual pacifist. There is no such thing. You can be a spiritual slave if you want. But if you want to be free in Christ, then you are going to contend for your faith. It is going to be a full-time fight. It's going to be something that rages day and night. Can y'all stand a bit of a history lesson tonight? Yeah. Now, Wednesday night's our chance to talk more serious subjects. It just is. On Sunday, it is a bit of a contention, like a spiritual boxing match in here sometimes. In fact, this last Sunday, we had a demon in the center of the church 
trying to manifest. I mean, some of you saw it, some of you noticed it. I want you to notice something with the most gentle people in the world. You can walk up and in the name of Jesus, they will submit to you immediately. And they will because the heavyweight contender is inside of us, the absolute right hand of God. And there is no power over us unless we give them power. Let's get into our history lesson. I'm going to talk to you about some men. You can write down their names if you want. The first one would be Isaiah. The second would be Jeremiah. And then Daniel. And then Nehemiah. And as we talk about these men, there's going to be a whole host of kings. As they come to my mind, I'll tell you all about them. And there's a point here. So don't go to sleep during a history lesson. Friends, do you know what the word history really means? It's his story. His story is written by historians all over the world, whether they recognize it or not. And in the uh, annals of human history, what we see is God's faithfulness. In your contention, the most powerful weapon that you have is the fact that you know that God is faithful to His Word. So I want to talk to you about that faithfulness for a minute. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. Isaiah prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. He prophesied about its rebuilding thereafter. He even named a man named Cyrus who would crush the Babylonian Empire. You need to understand, Cyrus doesn't live till 540 B.C. I mean, that's when he performs the action Isaiah prophesies. Isaiah prophesied it 200 years before. Can you imagine being so called of God that you can see into the heavens, prophesy about Yahweh's salvation, which is your namesake, and actually name a man who will punish the person who punished your people and call him by name two centuries before he's born. Somebody say that's strong. This is not a Nostradamus-like prophecy where you have to uh, manipulate the circumstances around it and say, well, it kind of sort of resembles it. Maybe it could apply. His name is written all over the book of Isaiah. In the 44th chapter of Isaiah, and in the second verse, we find these words. Say there when you're there. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I get that right. I didn't. I'm sorry. 28. 44, 28. Uh, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt in the temple of the Lord. Let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. When we're thinking about this and you're thinking about a man named Isaiah living in 740 B.C., he not only prophesied about the ten northern tribes going into captivity under Assyria, he also prophesied that at some later time, the capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, would be, de be destroyed and a man named Cyrus would order it to be rebuilt. 200 years before it happens. I would like you to imagine that a man 200 years ago says, the northern states above the Mason-Dixon line 
are going to go into captivity in Canada. And not only is that going to happen, but the capital of the southern states, Richmond, Virginia, it is going to be destroyed and a man named Matthew will rebuild it. When that happened, how sure would you be that that man is a prophet of God 200 years after it occurred? And yet that's not even the point. The point really comes from Isaiah 46. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. You're going to have to follow me a little bit tonight. You might even have to stretch to keep up with me. In the ninth verse, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. We serve the kind of God that can announce 200 years before a man's born what his name will be and what he will do, not just in a family, not just in a city, not just in a state, but among the nations of the world, and then he can cause it to come to pass. Somebody say, I have a purpose. If you have a purpose, and it is a godly purpose, one given by God, that purpose will stand. And he knows hundreds of years in advance that he was going to raise you up to perform that purpose. All the power of hell hears it too, though. And they resist it, and they try to stomp it out. So men like Isaiah's prophecies were resisted. Jewish literature says that it was sawed in two for prophesying the things that he did. As you move through history, we move from the 700s B.C. to the 600s B.C. We have a man named Jeremiah in the 600s B.C. And his name we, means Yahweh will raise up. I want you to think about these names for just a minute. Could Isaiah's mama have known that when she named him Yahweh saves, that that would be the bulk of the work of his life, preaching about Yahweh's salvation? And yet God moved on her to name him what he would become. Could Jeremiah's mother have known when God formed him in the womb that his work would be about the raising up of a Jerusalem that was destroyed and prophesied about before? And yet God was at work in these generations. Do you think God cared only about Isaiah? That he cared only about Jeremiah? Do you really think that when Ephesians 2.10 says that you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance, that he doesn't care about the purpose in your life? The nations themselves aligned against God's promises. The people of God often got on the wrong side of God's promises. And God was still big enough to bring them about. Come on, that ought to encourage somebody. I want to tell you that your brothers can throw you in a hole and sell you to Ishmaelite traders. You can be carried off in chains and accused of rape and thrown in a dungeon where you're forgotten about. And if God said you'll rule the known world, you will rule the known world. Amen. Hell can't stop you. False brothers can't stop you. Slander can't stop you. The only thing that can stop you is you. And when we can learn to take hold of what God has given us and let His purpose stand... When we can cry out with all of our heart, this olive tree is beaten. The olives are falling off of it. But in the name of Jesus, I will not be uprooted from God's promises. Then hell cannot prevail against you. Jesus said, this is my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you are the church, hell has no victory in your life unless you yield the fight. Anybody interested in yielding? I don't even like to yield when I come across a sign that demands it. I personally feel like the laws of momentum ought to guide our lives because that's how I yield in my spiritual life. If God is going to run me over, I will stop for him. But everything else better get out of my way because I'm going to move forward. I want to encourage you, don't sit and contemplate what you've already been told to do. I want to encourage you as the pastor of this church, don't sit and dig up and doubt what you've sown in faith. In the name of Jesus, find your purpose and get to work. And all of the power of hell cannot stop you. It didn't stop Jeremiah. They threw him in pits. He prophesied that Babylon would conquer and captivate Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, can you imagine what that must have been like? How would you like somebody to stand in the town center of Sugarland and prophesy that the Russians would conquer us? I don't think that the world would run out and give them offerings. But he did. He did because God formed him for a purpose, to warn his people. And in Jeremiah 13, you can just write this down, 17 through 19, he said, you will be captive to Babylon. By the time you get to Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, Jeremiah is actually standing prior to the Babylonian captivity, somewhere around the year 604, saying, when Babylon comes, they will not only conquer us, they will rule us exactly 70 years. You know, the world was amazed when Muhammad Ali called the round in which he would knock out Sonny Liston. They thought he was a prophet because of that. He made it happen by the strength of his own right arm, in his case, own left arm. In what way would you ever be able to determine that not only would Russia conquer America, but the number of years they would be allowed to rule it down to the year? You never could make that happen. These are not self-fulfilling prophecies. These are not the trickery of some strange person with a Ouija board that wants your money. This is the living God who has determined things must happen on the planet and is looking for willing people to carry out his work. So he formed Jeremiah, a man that he would make like steel and his brothers could not bend him. I want to encourage you to get some spiritual steel tonight. The old Baptist song says, though none go with me, still I will follow. And we sing it well, but we need to learn to live it well. Sometimes you don't have to look to your left and right for the approval of those who should be your peers. Sometimes what you need to do is look heavenward and forget what is behind and push on to what is ahead. The people of God never wanted to come out of Egypt. But praise God, a man named Moses had spiritual steel in his bones and he didn't give them a choice. Sometimes the people of God gathered together and compromised. Ask Samson, they put out his eyes in a manner of speaking by constantly handing him over to the Philistines. But in the name of Jesus, even in the midst of his failure, he accomplished God's will for his life because God is bigger than your failure. So I ask you, what separates you from the will of God? Your brothers? Failure? Hell? Demons? In the name of Jesus, none are able to stop us from doing God's will. We need some Holy Ghost determination in the room tonight. Turn with me to the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. This is one of those scriptures, little old ladies embroider on pillows. And I don't think for a moment they have considered the condition 
in which it was written. The 29th chapter of Jeremiah, and look at the 10th verse. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, mind you, this is happening before 586 when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. When the 70 years are completed, how confident is that in what God has told him? He's not saying if it happens. He's not saying kind of like, sort of, maybe God could uh, potentially do this. He's heard from God. And he says, when this happens, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In what condition did Jeremiah have to prophesy that? He's the one saying your life is about to get like hell on earth. You're about to endure the worst that human beings can endure. You're going to see pregnant women torn open. You're going to see babies dashed against rocks. You're going to see people enslaved and murdered on these very city walls. And yet, let me tell you what God says. It's only going to last for 70 years. Only 70 years? No wonder they wanted to throw him in a hole. I've learned something. When people don't like what you have to say, they pick on the way that you say it. Right? So I imagine there was a whole group of prophets going, you know, the problem with Jeremiah is he really needs to learn to deliver his message in a palatable fashion. Jeremiah is just not up on the terms that we use today and the right way to connect with people. They probably needed some cool young man in a muscle shirt, you know, uh, to come up and introduce Jeremiah's topic so that all the young people could understand it. And I probably needed to close with the right song so that those with silver hair would receive it. Jeremiah cared nothing for those things. He wanted to hear from God and he proclaimed the truth. The living God used Jeremiah to say the time period in which Israel would be captive and that when the captivity was over, what Isaiah said was true. God would rebuild Jerusalem. So Isaiah named Cyrus 200 years ahead of time, and he predicted two empires conquering the people of God before they even reigned. Jeremiah named the length and the result of the captivity. This takes us to Daniel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. <laughs> I find comfort in this. Isaiah's mama names him Yahweh's salvation, not knowing that the rest of his life, that's what he would be teaching, even while prophesying captivity. Do you know that every preacher worth his salt prophesies captivity while prophesying Yahweh's salvation? Because the people of God were not meant to be captive, but they'd been taken captive by the prince of the power of the air, and our job is to prophesy salvation. Did you know that Jeremiah, whose name meant Yahweh will raise up, this is... This is the heart of every purely called man of God. Destruction is coming because of sin, but God desires to raise you up. And you may go through a difficult time, but on the other side of it, there is restoration. If she named him that on the eighth day of his life, and God made it true. This takes us to Daniel. God is my judge. Daniel got to live through the captivity. Jeremiah got to enter it. Daniel got to go all the way through it. Daniel lives in 550s BC, lives through the captivity, and look at Daniel, the ninth chapter. Say there when you were there. 
in the ninth chapter of Daniel, in the first verse, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word the Lord had given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Did you ever think that maybe Daniel just fell from the sky and anointed wonderful man of God? He had to study the scriptures to get insight into it. And he looked backwards to a man that lived in 740 B.C., 200 years before Daniel lived, and went, a brother got some insight into this, and he gave his life to prophesy this truth. And now I'm living out what he said, and he said this would end. This would end. And he begins to pray and to act as if it would end. Now, a minute ago I said Isaiah where I should have said Jeremiah. But Daniel and Jeremiah are contemporaries. Jeremiah, a much older man than Daniel is. My point is, look at the faithfulness of God here. In the names, we hear Yahweh's salvation. We hear Yahweh raises up. We hear God is my judge. And what these men said came to pass. We get all the way to the year 445 B.C. Somebody say, that's a long time. Isaiah has prophesied things in 740 B.C. that have not taken place in some cases until we get to 540 B.C. He prophesied a man named Cyrus would come in and he would rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus didn't even conquer Babylon until 539 or 540 B.C. Isaiah prophesies it 200 years before it happens. Cyrus shows up and it does happen and Daniel is able to live through and watch what is happening. If our God can announce something 200 years before it happens but he still needs men to carry it out, why does the church sit around and say if God wants it done, he'll do it? Why does the church sit around and say, well, we know Jesus will come back and he'll fix everything? When God wants something done on the earth, he uses you to do it. When he wants his people delivered, he raises up a deliverer. When he wants somebody healed, he has someone go pray for them. When he wants something done, he uses us to do it. The church is suffering from such confidence that God's word is true that we forget we have a role in God's word. Why was Daniel searching Jeremiah's prophecies? He was looking for what his part in God's plan is. Why do you read the word? It needs to be to find what your part in God's plan is. Nehemiah means comforted by Yahweh. I can't think of a less comforting time to live in. In 445 BC, this is what has happened. We've gone from Babylon uh, to Medo-Persian kings. We've seen the rise of Cyrus who crushed the Babylonians, who gave way to Darius the Mede, and now a man named Artaxerxes Longimanus is king. They're doing exactly what God said they would do even though they're not particularly godly. And Nehemiah is tasked with a purpose. God has said his city would be rebuilt, but now he has to raise up a man who will actually do it. God said it, but a man would have to do it. What has God said in your life that's going to require you to do something? 
Didn't he tell Joshua, go into the land? I've given you the land. Joshua had to swing a sword almost every day of his life, though, didn't he? God will give you a promise, but it doesn't mean you don't have to do anything for that promise to come about. Church, we have to shake off our spiritual apathy. We have to learn to turn our face towards God's promise with such intensity that we cannot be turned away. Nehemiah finds out in the very first chapter, you can turn there, in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he finds out in the, in the first through fourth verse that there is a serious need. And when he finds out about this serious need, by the time you get to the fifth and eleventh verse, he's decided that he wants to respond to that need. And in responding to that need, you hear him begin to cry out to the living God. He begins to pray. As he prays, he is praying that God's will is done. Why would you have to pray that something was done that God said to do? In other words, if God says something is going to last 70 years, then why do you have to pray that it only lasts 70 years? Have you ever thought about that? Jeremiah says the captivity is going to last 70 years, but he raises up Daniel in the ninth chapter to pray that it only lasts 70 years. God says that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, and yet Nehemiah is here praying that God would rebuild Jerusalem. And so what does God do? He uses Daniel to prepare the people to leave the exile, and he uses Nehemiah to begin to rebuild it. When you begin to discern what God's will is and set your heart to pray about God's will, this is the first step to being used to complete God's will. Do you remember what Jesus said his food was? Not just do the will of the Father and finish his work. You can find that in the fourth chapter of John. Christians do very well at believing what God's will is, but finishing his work, that's a whole nother subject. I've begun something for the Lord. Matthew's begun something for the Lord. But just like our salvation, it needs to be completed. What have you begun for the Lord? Where are you at in the process? What resists you? And what do you have to do to finish the race? I can assure you that if we sit on our couches, fold our hands, a little sleep and a little slumber, and spiritual poverty will come upon us. We are in a life and death struggle. This week ought to have brought that home in dramatic fashion to many people. There is our lying liars that lie. <laughs> there are devils that speak words to people that are simply not true. There are sicknesses that come out of nowhere and are not of God. There are so many things that happen to get you off course. But in the end, who can stop you? Only you. This is an important principle. Soon as Nehemiah understands his responsibility, something happens. Look at Nehemiah, the second chapter and 10th verse. In the second chapter and 10th verse, it says, When Sanballat the Horonite, say Horonite. You said that, I didn't. And Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I want you to know that in the heavens, when a man decides to do God's will, and on the earth, when a man sets his face to do God's will, it upsets people. It upsets the status quo. 
because there are demonic powers that don't want God's will done. They're dedicated to the destruction of God's people and the defaming of God who makes promises. There are people on the earth that Ephesians 2 says are subject to a spirit of disobedience. And so when we set our face to not just understand God's will, to not just know God's will, but to actually perform it, they come out of the woodworks to stop the work being done. So we have Sambalad, a, what, what is he? A Horonite, and Tobiah, an Ammonite. I've never done an etymology on that word, but it doesn't sound like he's of noble descent. They were not upset with Nehemiah before he began the work. They were not mad with Nehemiah while he's just drinking wine with Artaxerxes Longimanus. When did they get upset? When he decided to promote God's work. Sometimes when we look around us and we see people have relative ease in their life, you have to wonder why. Is it because they have not set their face to promote God's work and so the principalities of the air and the puppets who follow them have no quarrel with them? The sons of the living God will be resisted every day of their life and that resistance will make you stronger. It will deepen your character. It will deepen your trust. And it's supposed to. When we understand what God's will is, we fight through opposition. In this way, the more opposition, the more glory there is for God. Everybody I've ever known that is really called of God experienced great opposition. You know what scares me to death? The guy that says, I feel called to start a church and 10,000 people show up. That scares me to death. And the reason that it does is if you don't have to labor before God, if you are not broken in your own inabilities, if you are not dependent on the power of the Holy Ghost, then how will you ever know it was God's victory? How do you know that it's not just that you're a collaborator with the enemy? I don't want to collaborate with the enemy. With all of my heart, I want him to know that I am here to take from him. I want him to know that I cut the heads off of demonic powers. Because that's the faith that I'm of, and that's the faith you were born into by the power of Jesus. Nehemiah sets his face to do God's will. These prophecies began in Isaiah's time. 740 B.C. Nehemiah is 300 years later. But what Isaiah said is coming to, tr coming to pass because a man decided to do God's will. Have you ever heard that the Lord would return soon? How long have people been saying that? A couple thousand years. Have we completed the task that he told us to do, though? We've not gone to every people group on the planet. Most of the time, we haven't even gone to our neighbors. We haven't produced the crops that are 30, 60, and 100-fold. We've been dissuaded by comfort. We've been dissuaded by resistance. We've been dissuaded. When we set our face to accomplish God's will, there will be resistance, and it's a mark you're on the right path. Somebody say, thank you, God, for resistance. Y'all ever see those Bowflex commercials? I mean, if you just buy that thing, you don't even got to use it. You just buy that thing, man, you'll be a bronze Adonis overnight. They got powerful resistance bands, it says. 
Why do you want powerful resistance in your life? Because it builds you. It shapes you. It makes you strong. In this way, the more the devil opposes you, the more his minions oppose you, the stronger you get in the faith. And I'm going to tell you yesterday's mountains are today's little bitty hills. That's the way it works. I've been watching my son working out, and while he struggled with the bar with 10 pounds on either side at one point, now he's racking on 45-pound plates at a frightening rate of rate. Why is the resistance increasing? Because he's becoming stronger every single day. Let's not whine because of resistance. Let's take it as a badge of honor. Let's learn to laugh in the face of that resistance and say, Oh, you keep on and tomorrow I'll be strong enough to take you and your brother and the other seven you bring. And uh, demons lie, by the way. They'll all tell you they're a legion, right? So I threw out the last one said they were a legion. So bring on some more. How many legions you got? Who was in Romania? How many demons came out of that little girl? And what did they tell us? Not strong enough to cast them out. What else did they say? You know, we were weak. What else? I mean, on and on and on. At the end of the day, what happened though? They came out. Was that a parlor trick? Did we plan it? How, how'd you invest six hours? Of, Gabby, you were there. Where am I lying? Six hours of our time, right? That's what you wanted to do that evening? No, not, not me either. But when you learn what God's will is, there's a push and a push back. Friends, in the name of Jesus, he who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. I'm not going to be pushed out of this race. I am not going to be pushed down in the name of Jesus. I'm going to stand up and fight for the faith that Jesus left in my care. Did you know He left something in your care? How is the world going to learn about Him? They're going to learn from the way you talk, live, act, and breathe about Him. He left His testimony in your care. How are you doing with it? Little beaten? Little battered? Well, at least you're dangerous enough to the enemy to have shots fired in your direction. In the name of Jesus, we will not be stopped. Turn with me then from Nehemiah 2 to 2.20. You don't have to turn far, huh? Look at Nehemiah's response. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Who gives success? The God of heaven. Where is your trust placed? In the God of heaven. Where is your hope? In the God of heaven. So everything that the devil says about you, Justin, no matter what it is, you can agree with him. And you can laugh because it never depended upon you. It depends upon the God of heaven who gives you success. So you can be told you're stupid and you can say, you know, that's probably true. You can be told you're ugly and you can say, you know, it's true. You can be told so many things. Agree with your adversary quickly and laugh and say, nevertheless... The God of heaven will give me success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. You need to understand something, devil. Not only are you going to not be able to keep me from starting, you'll never have a share in what I've got a share in. You know how difficult it was to start this work? And how easy it is to take it for granted when you walk through those doors and there's air conditioning and padded chairs. People had to sell the furniture in their house just to put the first folding chairs in a garage that my wife and I hung sheetrock on the ceiling at 3 o'clock in the morning the night before. 
When Matthew showed up and looked at the electrical work I had done, all I could say is, I'm sorry, I'm not an electrician. But you know what? Not being an electrician did not stop me from doing it. You know why? I knew what God's will was. I knew it and would not be denied it. Saints, there needs to be some Holy Ghost tenacity beginning to rise in this room. The devil could beat you into a little greasy spot on the ground and that little greasy spot better yell, I'm blessed. Otherwise, you're defeated before you start. It is so easy to get discouraged. It is so easy to dwell in discontentment and to begin to blame everything around you for why life's not just, just going right. But it'd be so much better to dedicate yourself to promote the will of God. See every other thing as resistance to be overcome. And I want to tell you that every obstacle in your way is just an opportunity to see God's power. Put the Red Sea before me and you're going to watch it split. You put a mountain in front of me and we're going to watch it become level ground. You put an army in front of me and you're going to watch the armies of God appear and blind them. I'll lead them back to their leader, embarrassed and defeated. Do you know why? It never depended on me. It depended upon the living God, and it's Him that I work for. Now, is that just me alone, or is there another Holy Ghost crazy person in here? We got anybody filled with the power of God in this place? I mean, are we, are we here in a crochet club, or are we warriors of the living God? No, nothing's wrong with crochet, some of you ladies. I rather like the things that you make, but that's not why God put you on the planet. He just loves you enough to allow you a hobby in between killing demonic powers. In Nehemiah, we see that it's God who gives success. In the fourth chapter, watch this. The attitude of Nehemiah is that God gives success. The method of Nehemiah is one worth studying. In the fourth chapter and 23rd verse, neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me. All right, now let's, let's run through that. Neither I, that's me, nor my brothers, that's you, nor my men, don't know who that is, I, maybe the axe team, nor the guards, maybe that's the prayer team, with me took off their clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Going for water is a Hebrew expression that means something entirely different than going for water. Why would you take off your clothes to go for water? This has to do with bathing and all of those other processes that happen around that same time. He said, we were never taking our eye off what God called us to do to the very point that even if we were showering, shaving, and uh, eliminating, we kept the weapons of God with us. Do you know why? Because the enemy wanted to stop them and they would not be stopped. He stationed people at the weakest places in the wall, not the strongest places where they could duck and cover and hide, at the strongest, uh, at the weakest places in the wall so that they could defend God's city. The promise of God in your life is the city on which your family will be built. It just is. My entire Christian walk has been built around what God told Jennifer and I in the first two months of our marriage, and we will not let it go. I love some of the ideas that people have for us. Sometimes I get 10 or 15 a day. Sometimes I get 10 or 15 from one person. I don't know how they could all be right, but in any case, I'll get them like rapid fire. But I'm going to stick to the four or five things I know he told me to do until they are done. And then I'll consider something else. And you know what? It's not done and neither am I. 
We need to not be charismatics that have a new vision for our life every two seconds. We need to not be double-minded, unstable men who are like windshield wipers being tossed to and fro. Somewhere in your heart, God is birthing a promise. He's birthing a purpose. And you know what you're going to have to learn to do? Persevere in it. And you can look in the heavens with Holy Ghost defiance and say, bring it on, hell. I will take all you have and more and come out the other side because God will give me success. And when you get that kind of shameful audacity, what will happen is the devil will switch tactics. You know the Bible says to be aware of the devil's schemes? Let me just cue you in on how this works. Where at some point in your life, people are throwing eggs from a distance at you. They're criticizing you from outside your city walls. They're telling you you are stupid. They're telling you you can't do it. Don't start it. And if you start it, it won't work. And if you started it and it's working, it won't last. Jerusalem's still here today. You know who's not? Samballat and Tobiah the Horonite and his Ammonite friend. So the devil switched tactics on them. Turn with me to the sixth chapter. In the sixth chapter, the tenth verse. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahitabel, who was shut in at his home. <laughs> Shut in at his home. Because that's where the world was that needed salvation, right? Shut in at his home. Because that's where the world was that needed healing, right? Shut in at his home. You know, I love the way that D.L. Moody said it. A woman said, sir, I don't like your methods of evangelism. He said, I don't like them either. He agreed with his adversary quickly. I don't like them either, ma'am. Tell me, how do you do it? She said, I don't. He said, then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. C.T. Studd encouraged the whole world to get out of the way of those who were doing the work of God. This person is hiding in their house, but they're about to take issue with Nehemiah. Where's the work? Was it in the house? No, Nehemiah is busy protecting the people of God, advancing the cause of God by rebuilding a wall. But a guy shut in because of his fear, his lack of faith, his cowardness is right here. And listen to what he says. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors. Hide in a house, hide behind God's house. Because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. Do you know why that doesn't shake Nehemiah? He already knew they were coming to kill him. They've been trying to kill him since the moment he set his face to do God's will. Prophesy to me that the devil wants to kill me and I'm going to laugh at you. Tell me I'm a walking dead man and I'm going to laugh again. Tell me I'll be martyred. Tell me whatever you want to tell me. And all that means to me is that I'm doing something for the Lord and the devil doesn't like it. You want me to go bite my nails and hide? Look, people who live their life shut away so that they cannot experience danger never experience much else either. The living God wants you to be bold in what He has told you. He wants you to go after Him like you trust Him. Did He ever tell us to protect our lives or did He tell us to give them away? Now when I preach like this, invariably somebody comes and says, you know, uh, that's kind of irresponsible. And, and you take women and children with you? 
Yes, and women followed Jesus everywhere, and if I'm not mistaken, the world killed him too. This gospel is about caring more about the purpose of God in your life than you care about prolonging your life. If we can't cross that bridge, we really can't do anything for the Lord. This man is hiding in his house, scared. And then, because it is more socially acceptable, he says, let's go hide in God's house, scared, and make sure you bar those doors. Nehemiah has a totally different attitude. Nehemiah says, but I said, should a man like me run away? <laughs> now, does that sound arrogant to you? He's simply looking at a sniveling, whiny, yellow-bellied coward who will never accomplish a thing for God in his life. And he's saying, a man like you might be able to run, but I've been born of the living God and it's not happening. Amen. Where is that spirit in the church? Where is that Holy Ghost tenacity that says, you can run if you want to. I'm standing my ground in the field God gave me and I'll strike down every Philistine that comes. See, if we could learn to pray like that, if we could learn to stand like that, then you're not shaken by minor disagreements anymore. Because you know what? Let's just suppose that Matthew and I have a minor disagreement. As long as everything is peachy keen, Matt and I have the complete freedom to make that as big a deal as we want to make it. But when our life's purpose is to stand in the field and strike down Philistines, we stop arguing when they start approaching. Resistance is a blessing, friends. You, I want to tell you something. When David had no resistance in his life, he didn't do well. Found time to go hang out on a rooftop. So what did God do for him because he loved him? He added resistance back to his life. He said, the sword will never depart from your house. He said, you're going to have a rough life from here on out. David was born for a rough life and so were you. We're born for it. You know what you're not born for? A life of ease and comfort. It's not good for you. We need to quit seeking it out. We need to quit wanting to be fat, happy, dumb, and rich. And the day's coming when you will not have that choice. You can take a, a Wikipedia it. If you don't believe me, just look it up. An olive tree grows in what they call calcareous soil. It's prone to disease if you place it in particularly good soil or rich. It is a tree that is tenacious in drought and it likes dry, barren, nutrient-devoid, calcareous soil. And it thrives there. But when you put it in a life of relative ease, it gets sick and dies. You're like an olive tree in the house of God. And David said so. We were born for this fight. So the enemy picks a new tactic. He doesn't any longer come from the outside with Sam Ballot and Tobiah and says, don't start it, it won't work. He doesn't any longer say to Nehemiah, if you start it, it won't last. Instead, he gets one of Nehemiah's brothers who should support him but is a slave to fear and a coward to say, let's go hide inside what you've already built. Did you hear me? Let's in hide inside what you've already done. You got a good start here, Nehemiah. Nobody can deny you heard from God. You started it and the walls are beginning to rise. Oh, Nehemiah, what a great work you did. But he hadn't finished that work. And now he's being tempted by one of his own brothers. You've gone far enough, man. This is, this is good enough. 
Do you remember that Pharaoh did the same thing to Moses? He said, you know, Moses, why don't you just go a few days out in the desert? Mm -mm, it's not going to happen. You know, Moses, what you could do is you could leave the women and children behind. No, it's not going to happen. Okay, Moses, as a last resort, go, but leave your livestock behind. Moses looked at him and said, I will not leave a hoof behind. Not a single hoof. If our attitude is the will of God or nothing at all, accomplishing what God put you here or nothing else, you cannot be stopped. The enemy will attack you from outside the wall and he will try to attack you from inside the wall. But in the name of Jesus, God will cause you to stand. We can be aware of the devil's schemes and sometimes the walls are a whole lot more relative to you personally than a city. Sometimes the attacks are external, people criticizing you, and sometimes they're internal. Your own resolve is beginning to waver. I've experienced it all, friends, I promise. From the depths of failure, from the very gut-wrenching, groaning, Holy Ghost, moaning cries of, Lord, I'm failing and I need your help. But He will help you. You just cannot stop what He told you to do. Anybody want to accomplish something for the living God? I told you that Ephesians 2.10, put that one on the screen, says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. Is that word just for me? Is that word just for Matthew? So what did He prepare in advance for you to do? Because He announced for Cyrus in 740 B.C. something He wouldn't do until 540 B.C. He announced for Jeremiah something that would begin at the end of Jeremiah's life and last precisely as long as he said. He announced for Daniel his role, and it happened. And then Nehemiah gets to come and back clean up. He gets to do what God had been talking about for centuries. Do you know why? The work was prepared in advance for him to do. But didn't he have a choice? Do you think he got discouraged? When he got discouraged, he said, God will give me success. Do you think he felt like a failure? He said, failure or not, I'm not going to set my sword down until the work's done. Not even to use the restroom. It's full time for God or nothing. This is an attitude that hell cannot stop. And I know that from personal experience. I know what it is to have brothers that should support us, look at us and say it's not a church, you should give up. I know what it is to have loved ones that should support us, say our work was not worthwhile and leave. I know what it is to have false brothers make accusations that never happen and aren't true. I've been attacked from outside the wall and inside the wall. And look around. There is still a church here. You learn to love when others curse. You learn to give people what they need rather than they deserve. You know why? Because God's going to give you success. This is His work, not yours. It's not about your reputation, it's about His. Turn with me to 2 Kings 3. Say there when you were there. You know anybody else uh, organizing trips to drive across the border into Mexico? I'm sure they're out there. But why are the churches with millions of dollars and all those fancy vans not doing it? Maybe they just got too much to lose. I've already lost everything for Jesus. 
and the crazy people that are going with me have already lost everything for Jesus. And I can be told day and night how irresponsible it is, and we could go hide in fear. But you know, you wouldn't add one more day to your life, and you certainly wouldn't add one more worthwhile thing to the kingdom of God by doing it. So at the end of the day, what do you want to live for? Don't we all say we want to live for Jesus? What does it look like to live for Jesus? My ask for your forgiveness in advance, it doesn't look like going to build chicken camps. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like spending your life on your own appetites and desires and making the kingdom of God just fun fairy tale park. Six flags over Jesus. It is a real life war. And the people of God have been fighting it for a long time. We owe these men who went before us something. What if Jeremiah didn't prophesy? Where would that leave Isaiah? What if Daniel did not prophesy? You know, it's very possible they made Daniel a eunuch. That could depress a few men. What if Nehemiah didn't go carry out the work? What would they say to Isaiah, who was sawn in two for making those statements? What would they say to him in that day? The living God and everyone who has served him in the generations before us, we owe a debt to, to finish the work he gave us to do. That means you have to discover it. That means you have to fight for it. You have to persevere. In 2 Kings 3, we find these words. You can find it in verse 19. Oh, why don't we just start in 16? And he said, this is what the Lord says. This is Elisha speaking. This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. Uh, do you know what that says in the Hebrew? He will hand Moab over to you. Do you know what that says, anyone? It says he will hand Moab over to you. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It says that Moab would be handed over. You will overthrow every, say every, you will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. How many major towns would be left after this is over? Zero. Zero. Because every major town would be overthrown. You will cut down every good tree and stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. Is there any part of this prophecy that's unclear? At the end of the battle, Moab's going to belong to you. Not a few, not some, but every major town will belong to you. Now, Elijah was known for prophesying things that were incorrect, right? No. So we had a man named Elijah, and he was so powerful that he did amazing miracles. And he had a successor, a man who got double the anointing and performed twice as many miracles as Elijah did, and that is Elisha. This is Elisha. A man twice as powerful as Elijah. If he said it, wouldn't you think it would happen? I mean, he's pretty well God's man of power for the hour on the scene, isn't he? Anybody in here think that it shouldn't happen? God said it would happen just like Isaiah said something would happen. I wouldn't think that Elisha is inferior to Isaiah. Look at verse 27. Verse 26, rather. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, 
By the way, that's what Elisha said would happen. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Say, so far, so good. Oh, it looks just like what Elisha prophesied, doesn't it? Then he took his firstborn son who was to succeed him as king and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. What'd they do? They withdrew to their own land. What happens when the enemy wants victory more than the people of God do? See, the prophecy was correct. And God said it. And He said it through His prophet. But the people of God failed to carry out what God said to do, so it went undone. I'm going to tell you the truth. There'll be a day when every single Moabite will be subject to God. Whatever men failed to do, King Jesus will have a successful bride who will do. In the name of Jesus, it'll happen. My point here being, just because God says a thing, doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to it. The reason that Moab prevails is they wanted victory more. They outlasted and outpersevered the people of God. Do you want to be outlasted by the enemy? Who can stop you? Only you. When we learn about spiritual warfare, friends, people like to talk about casting out demons. They like to talk about all kind of fanciful things. You know what the most important aspect of spiritual warfare is? Lost men, exactly like Winston Churchill understood it, never, 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 never quit. Period. Your ability to get knocked down and get back up is what God will use to give you victory. You show me a man of God who is victorious and I will show you a man of God that failed many times before he was ever victorious, but he refused to quit. So you witness to that relative and they spit in your face. There's always tomorrow and you wiped it off last time. You can wipe it off this time. So you raised up another disciple that still is wiping their feet on you. That's okay. How many are getting it right? How many people did you wipe your feet on before you understood? This is how the kingdom works and there's no room to whine about it. What we do is we bless what we do is we smile in the face of adversity. What we do is soldier on in the name of Jesus. Anybody want to soldier on in the name of Jesus? The fury against Israel was great, it said. The fury. You know the next time I can remember that word being used in the Bible? When Satan was cast down, it says he was furious because he knew his time was short. I have a question. Are those that following him going to want victory? more than we do because Jesus Christ is coming back for a victorious church and what we do daily matters whether or not you'll witness when he says witness whether or not you'll pray when he says pray the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life is victory that is victory for you to do what he says is victory because it's him who gives success the word for victory in Hebrew was teshuah it's incredibly close for the, for the word for repentance, teshubah. So close that to the untrained ear, you might not even hear the difference. Friends, you want victory in your struggles? Repent of your direction. Set your face like flint towards His and come hell, high water, or hell's messengers. You refuse to be dissuaded. 
Sometimes there's nothing left but white-knuckled grit. And I'm telling you, that's enough. If it depended on our abilities, you'd never make it. You just wouldn't. We're going to come to a close here in just a minute. But I think we owe it to ourselves to read something Peter wrote. This is 1 Peter in the first chapter. Say there when you're there. Anybody in here love the Lord tonight? Y'all are awful quiet about an awful serious message. You know, and I understand we're thinking about it. What I'm trying to get you to understand is you're a whole lot more powerful than you might think. And what you do really does matter. It really does matter. There is a huge movement in our society to make your life meaningless. I mean, after all, you're some amoeba that cried climbed out of a primordial soup and at some point sprouted amphibian-like flippers or something and eventually grew into an ape and then became uh, whatever we are, huh? Isn't that what they say? You teach people they came from animals and they act little better than animals. You teach them that they were made by the living God for a divine purpose that only they can accomplish. God said to Israel, said it in Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a treasured possession, a royal priesthood. You've been grafted into that kind of promise. Things that you treasure, you have a very special place for. I have a very few things I care for in my life. One of them, you'll see, I, I never let it far from my side. I have a zero-tolerance pocket knife. I know that's... That's silly for some people, huh? But it saved my life by cutting open coconuts a couple times. Yeah, that and Zeke's arm throwing, knocking them down. And I just like it. It's important to me. Uh, I have a couple things. You know what? I know where they are 100% of the time. None of them are worth any money to anyone else. They're all worth something to me. I treasure them, not because other people value them, but because I value them. You, does that make sense? You might look at what I value and means nothing to you. But I know where it is every second of the day. I baby it. I care for it. And it'll be there with me as long as possible. That's how God views you. Everybody else may see you and there's nothing there of worth. He, they don't know why he values you. But he knows where you are every second of the day. He has a purpose for you and he's never going to let you far from him. You know why? He purchased you. And he has a purpose for you. We have to persevere in that. We need to get past this idea that the will of God is optional. Or there's a perfect and a permissive will of God. What a load of sand ballot. Are you all in 1 Peter? 1 Peter, the first chapter and 10th verse. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Understand that every prophet who ever prophesied by the same Spirit that filled Jesus was looking forward to the moment when they would see fulfilled and understand the work that we are actually doing right now. How important is Nehemiah to Isaiah? Well, it's everything. It made his life true and worth meaning. 
If we refuse to carry out the promises of God, our lives make their lives irrelevant. But if you carry them out, then the whole building is joined together in a Holy Ghost unity and we rejoice in victory together. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Isaiah served Jeremiah. Jeremiah served Daniel. Daniel served Nehemiah because they gave them a bit of revelation to help them carry out their task. This is what the generations of the people of God are supposed to do. We are supposed to give those around us the revelation we have to help them carry out their task. That's our goal. That's why we propagate Christianity everywhere we go. That's why we share our testimony everywhere we go. Because there are real men doing real work and you are really needed. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for what? Apathy? Prepare your minds for apathy? Come on, church, say no. Prepare your minds for apathy? No. What are you preparing your minds for? We could just sit and pray about it, you know. It's not what he said. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. I want to give you three scriptures before we leave. In the method of warfare today, our navies, they're important, but they're not important like they were hundreds of years ago. A little island called England or the United Kingdom ruled most of the known world because they had a superior navy. As the naval power became less important, something else took serious dominance. It was air power. This is a perfect understanding for us. You want to be powerful in the kingdom of God, learn to call in the air attack. Luke 18.1 says, Jesus told them this parable so that they would pray and hear these words. Not give up. You want a powerful prayer life? It's not a special kind of prayer. It's not a rosary bead. It's not the prayer that Kenneth Hagin prayed or the one that Billy Graham blessed or one that a Catholic man taught you to recite. A powerful prayer life is one that cannot stop. One that prays without ceasing. One that talks to their God constantly and says, everybody around me may be attacking from without and I may be being attacked inside, but you are my hope for success and I will not set down my sword. Amen. A prayer attack is an air attack, friends. It's like calling in those who are above you and saying, I need some help down here. If you want it done, I need your help. And he loves it. He ends this very parable by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Will you keep doing what I told you to do until I come back to relieve you of what I told you to do? He wouldn't have asked the question if it wasn't a serious question to be asked. Most of the parables have to do with being entrusted with something and needing to prove faithful over it. Your life needs to show the kind of tenacity that says, Lord, I can be trusted in the millennia to come because you are going to cause me to judge even the angels. 
They were disobedient and more powerful than me. And Lord, I became obedient because of your grace. And though I was weak, you were strong in me and I overcame them all. Saints, if we understood what we had, if we just knew, we wouldn't spend our time in petty gossip. We wouldn't invent reasons to be offended. We would not look for social causes. You would have a heavenly call. And it would so powerfully move in you that it'd be a gravitational pull all around you so that others would fight to join with you for the privilege of going to Washington, D.C., for the privilege of starting a church in Arkansas, for the privilege of changing Chicago, for the privilege of watching Sugarland transformed, the privilege of working with the homeless, the privilege of working with those imprisoned. When you know what you're here for, You know, leaders are going to create some movement, though. Put your hands together. Does that hurt at all? Moving back and forth a bunch. Is it getting hot yet? Leaders create movement. You know what movement creates? Friction. You were built for the heat. Stand up to it. Don't bow. Stand up to it. Of course other people are going to feel a little heat around you. Of course they're going to criticize you. Of course at times you're going to doubt even your own calling. And in the name of Jesus, you were built for the heat. He forges His people in the furnace of Egypt, He said. He rained down plagues while His people stood there and watched so that He could judge the gods of Egypt while the sons of God were standing on the earth. If we understood things like that, we'd view our future a whole lot differently than just flying away with a naked baby on a cloud. You were built for this. And if we can't stand during the days of affluence, how are you ever going to stand when our borders are overrun with ungodliness? An air attack is simply not giving up. Don't ask me how to pray anymore. Let's not talk about the prayer models. Let's not talk about the stations of the cross. Let's just adopt an attitude that says, I will never stop and your prayer will become powerful. In Matthew 4, 4, the devil comes and he says something to Jesus. In every kind of warfare these days, it comes down to two principles. What is your air campaign? And what is your hand-to-hand -hand combat like? Those are the two things. Because we're going to shoot Scud missiles. We're going to bring in MiGs. We're going to do all of those things. We're going to carpet bomb. We'll do whatever all of that is in the air. But at the end of the day, somebody actually has to march into Baghdad and kick Saddam Hussein in his face. It has to happen. Yeah, that feels good to say, doesn't it? I miss Schwarzkopf. We haven't had any like that in a while. Don't even get us started about Patton. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. If the air campaign in your life is not giving up when you pray, and I'm speaking of spiritual warfare here, then what hand-to-hand -hand combat is, is when tempted, you look and say it is written. Hand-to-hand -hand combat is when you take the sword that is the Word of God and you slay what would enslave you with it. Every single time a desire competes with the will of God in your life, you kill it with, it is written. The way that we win, friends, is we pray without ceasing. We learn the word and we do warfare with it. Paul said with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. We stand ready to bring down every pretension uh, that would exalt itself against our knowledge of Christ. We take captive every thought, he said in 2 Corinthians 10. 
hand-to-hand combat in the kingdom is comparing your thoughts with the Word of God and refusing to dwell on something that the Word of God does not endorse. You want to talk spiritual warfare? You don't need to buy a Rebecca Brown book. You don't need to go get oil. You don't need to go find some weird person to teach you weird things. You pray without giving up. You know what your purpose is and you will not let up. You persevere in it and you hit the devil with the word every time he suggests something to you to the contrary. This is how the church of the living God will stand against the gates of hell. It won't be through some magic ten steps. It won't be through somebody else's anointed prayer cloth. It'll be when you know who you are and you refuse to be anything else. You stay in contact with your commanding officer and you do what he says. Amen. Amen. Y'all still love me? I love you. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Y'all stand up. You know, it probably wouldn't be right not to quote James. I said one last scripture, so I won't read it. We'll put it on the screen and you can read it. It's James 4, 7 through 10. Can you still do that? Now, I'm not supposed to read it, so what's that first word? Oh, I can read with you. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and what will happen? Does that sound complicated? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will? Can the devil stop you? Only thing stop you from submitting to God. What do you have to fear? We don't have a thing in the world to fear. Friends, you are the victorious church of Jesus Christ. At the end of your life, all the power of hell cannot stop you from doing the very things that God said you can do. And it doesn't matter who's with you, He's with you. From time to time, we all get a little crossways. It happens. Maybe I don't understand what you're here for and you don't understand what I'm here for. You know who always understands? He does. It's wonderful to have the admiration of your peers, but please don't think you need it. You don't. You don't. You need to know God's will and be unrelenting what you need. 